Welcome to Red State Talk Radio. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you, Mr. Golden, for your service to our country. Our country thanks you, and everyone in this institution thanks you for that service. Uh, You're listening to Tori Says. For the next hour, I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, unfiltered news. Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is May 7, 2019, and it is Tuesday, and it is just a couple days away until we have Comey's indictment made public. Super awesome. A week to remember. Now, today I want to talk about things that people aren't really talking about. Um, I'll touch base on what Ray said. Total red flag right there. Uh, But we'll talk about the Arctic Council. We'll talk about the meeting that was canceled with Merkel. But we're also going to talk about H.R. 1. See, we discussed H.R. 1 a couple of months ago when the Democrats decided they passed it in the House very quickly. And it was killed in the Senate uh, thanks to Mitch McConnell's um, statement on it. This is very, very important. Because aside from censorship, censoring social media, censoring the news, uh, you know, they're using news strategies as to legally allow themselves to manipulate elections with this bill. So I will tell you what this bill is. I will tell you why it's important and why you should be sending an email, making a phone call to your Senate and congresspersons to make sure that they vote no on H.R. 1. Now, if you, like myself, have senators in your state, I have one senator, Senator Hoven, who is a complete rhino, they will probably vote for it because this bill seeks to make everyone rich. So they dangle money in front of these corrupt persons um, out now, the southern border is a big issue right now. Uh, we will discuss that, just touch upon it. Not too much. Uh, there's already a lot out there. And we'll also talk about how CNN is, and I've been saying this, broke. Because I've noted to everyone how Statler was hiring a producer and how he had pinned it on. Just so you know, I had a friend of mine apply. They pay something ridiculous, like $14 an hour. That's less than what you get at McDonald's, less than what you get at Walmart, even, uh, to work for CNN. They are broke. They are shutting down divisions. And today it broke that there's people that are taking voluntary buyouts. That's what they call them. And these are journalists around the world where they're closing down. Um, we, I will make some comments in regards to Pelosi's comments uh, in regards to the EU, Brexit, and what she has to say on that. Um, So let's see where we can start. I think maybe we should start on HR1. HR1 is really, really important. And then we'll, okay, (laughs) never mind. Everyone is tweeting me about Ray. So um, here it is. I have, uh, I saw how he, claimed 
during the appropriations subcommittee hearing. So he's there talking about money, but apparently they turn it into a political pony show. Uh, he says that um, he's not aware of any spying. And uh, he said that the FBI is spying when it investigates suspected terrorists and mobsters. And he's like, well, I wouldn't use the term spying. He also said that I believe the FBI is engaged in investigative activity. And part of investigative activity included includes surveillance activity of different shapes and sizes. And to me, the key question is making sure that it's done by the book, consistent with our lawful authorities. That's the key question. Different people use colloquial phrases. He also said that, um, you know, he, he was asked to discuss about the FBI's investigation into the Trump campaign. Um, but he said because the IG is investigating it and the origins of this whole Russia probe, he cannot speak to it. Now, um, remember, Barr said that he's expected that the IG report should be done in May or June. Um, but someone addressed him the question saying if he knew of any evidence that the FBI may have illegally spied on the Trump campaign. And he said, I don't think I personally have any evidence of that sort. That means that he doesn't have any evidence of that sort because it's none of his business, but that infers that someone else has evidence of that sort. Now, he, um, in addition, we all know that um, A.G. Barr is supposed to be investigating whether there was a merited or a legal basis for the FBI to open this counterintelligence investigation uh, on the Trump campaign, uh, linking the Trump campaign to Russia. Now, when Ray was asked about it, he said, well... What we're doing in the FBI is we're working, you know, the FBI is working with A.G. Barr uh, to help him get an understanding of how they started the counterintelligence. And he said, but I think that's part of his job and part of mine, because basically Ray is responsible for providing all the FBI documentation and people to testify for this. So we need to understand that this questioning, this line of questioning they had on Ray was more so for them to create a narrative on the spying and to try to get this ahead of the game because, like we said, Comey is going down this week. So his specific words were, I don't have any personal evidence. So ergo, he never said that there wasn't any evidence. Um, so... Ray was very politically correct, um, stated that he wouldn't use the term spying, and that's he's the FBI director. Of course, he wouldn't say that. Um, so calm down. They're making a whole lot of nothing out of they're making something out of nothing. There's nothing there. They're trying to purport that Ray meant nothing wrong was done. And this is because, you know. Comey's indictment will be announced and people are losing their mind. So as far as Ray, he 
clearly said, I have no personal evidence. So no personal evidence doesn't mean that there isn't evidence. So he was very good. And he answered the questions in a way that we wouldn't like. We would like him to say, yep, they spied. They were dirty and they did this and that. I totally love him to do it, but he can't. He is the director. He needs to maintain his composure and express that he is cooperating with AG Barr and other people are looking into it. He can't comment because it's none of his business. His business is to run the FBI now. And what happened before, he needs to be able to provide that evidence and that documentation and the personnel that they require, okay? So don't worry about Ray. It's all part of the the, the glamour effect. Let's listen to what Pelosi says. I'm going to play a clip for you right now, and I want you to listen to it carefully. Um, I'm only going to play like a minute or so. She waffles a bit. She was at Cornell University this morning, and uh, the event was called Inside Congress. She was tossed a lot of questions. I was listening to this this morning. She was tossed a lot of questions. It was it was really weird because some of them were like, well, you know, what if Donald Trump wins a popular vote and he becomes president again in 2020? Like, can we like not have him because we can't have President Trump as president again? And here and, and she started saying this is how they're working on it. And she's been talking about it. So take a listen to what she says. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, we have great lawyers, and so do all of our committees of jurisdiction. By the way, over 50%, Steve, of our members serve on those committees, over 50%. So we have great involvement of our membership in some of these decisions. um, And then we have the House Council. Now, it's interesting that all of the House Councils, whether they're Democratic or Republican, from uh, Tip O'Neill, on, have just put out a statement. Now, that's Democrats and Republicans, House counsels, have put out a statement saying the president does not have a right to spend money that has not been appropriated for the, no, we're talking about his, uh, you know, his usurpation of power uh, in terms of uh, building the wall and the rest of that. That's one of the other, we have many cases. We're in court on uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act. We're in court on his uh, not obeying uh, the appropriations process of Congress and saying he's going to do his own thing. And now all of these Democratic and Republican counts, House counsels are saying that he does not have that authority. That'll be helpful in court. We're in court on the census. They're trying to have a citizenship, which is completely opposed to what our founders had in mind, a citizen question. So we're in court on a number of things. Some of them will be more readily um, uh, dealt with on the, you know, the policy issues. Some of them relating to uh, the separation of powers might take longer. But let me say this. It's, ha- it's hard to tell what the courts will do, especially since he's just appointed two justices to the Supreme Court who share some of his views, sad to say. And that's the power of the presidency, so we should think about that in the next election. It's not just this one person for four years. It's judges for 40 years. And then and then some, you know, across the... They never retire. You know, when they retire, they're still there. 
Did you hear hear that, guys? I just wanted to pause it while she talks. She's telling this uh, these people at the event that they have the president in court and they're suing him on a matter of things and all this good stuff that they're doing to block the president. But what she mentioned is, you know, he has the right to, we don't know what the courts are doing. And that's because the power of the presidency allows to elect members of the Supreme court. Now, <laughs> she also said that they never retire. Yes, they don't. They kind of die in that position but then she goes if they retire they're still there is she trying to say that maybe some dead supreme court justices are still there i don't know i mean why make that statement they either retire which means you're dead or close to dead so you have to leave and you're gone i don't see how you retire and you're still there this is exactly what she said listen to it again supreme court who share some of his views sad to say and that's of the presidency, so we should think about that in the next election. It's not just this one person for four years, it's judges for 40 years. And then, and then some, you know, across the, they never retire, you know, when they retire, they're still there. So it's a, it's tough. But anyway, to, uh, we have to make sure, this will sound political, but we have to make sure that the Constitution wins the next presidential election. We can't be worrying about well, how long is this going to take or that. It'll take as long as it does. And we will press the case so that in the court of public opinion, people will know what is, um, is right. But we cannot accept a, a second term for Donald Trump if we are going to be faithful to our democracy. What does she mean by we cannot accept if we are faithful to the Constitution? Pay attention. Because today, we're going to analyze in the first hour the new Democrat strategy to meddle with elections, aside from censorship, aside from censorship, which, by the way, I know most of you have seen, the parody account for Alexandria Cortez's press was banned. But the thing is, why was it banned? It didn't violate any terms and conditions. But but if Twitter says that parody accounts are no longer allowed, which, by the way, I may make a parody account for Pelosi. I want gavel happy Pelosi. Maybe I should do one press, but Pelosi parody press thing. We should do it. I mean, bottom line is, you know, um, they're censoring anything that has to do that shows, you know, the Democrats in a bad light. But, you know, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, come on, dude. She did like this whole video of not knowing what a garbage disposal is. Seriously. Like, you don't even need a parody account. She's a parody by herself. But I digress. Censorship is one. But now is where we get into the details. Pelosi literally tells People, we are not going to accept it. We got to bind by the Constitution. We got to do this. And I will tell you their strategy. And you know, came around a few months ago. Now it's coming right back. And she's confident that the rhinos will accept it. Take a listen. Of the United States. And that is just a fact. So we have to operate on many fronts. We have to operate in the Congress, in the courts and in the court of public opinion, and we must win the next election. This isn't a political arena, so I'm not going to tell you how, but we all know, well, I think we all know why that would be important. 
And yeah, our, our lawyers give us a, a scan of time that some of this might take, and it can take a long time. Some of it can take a long time. But we can't, we, d we have to make the case, as the gentleman suggested, as far as precedence is concerned, but we also have to ensure the outcome uh, by taking the fight to the public. Now let me quote a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. He said, public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, practically nothing. Did you hear that? So again, here's where she reinforces that the Democrats are focusing on public opinion. Are you getting it? This is why we have an uptick in censorship. They are telling you what they're doing. You're just not listening. All of us are sitting there. We understand that they're censoring. They're banning. They're this. They're shadow banning. They're removing people from platforms. They're unpersoning them, right? They're no longer people. They're exiling them from society because unfortunately in this day and age, in order to be a journalist, you need social media. And in order to connect with people, you need social media. I mean, if you go for a job, they troll your Facebook, your Twitter, and your Instagram. Jesus, removing people from there is making them ghosts, exiling them from a global community. And she made that clear that public opinion is important. So what we need to watch out for is what's going on. And the reason I tell you this is because if HR1 is passed, they will be able to manipulate all information legally with taxpayer dollars and i'll get into that but listen to what else she says this is really scary stuff people need to be paying attention she even quoted how abraham lincoln said well if the people say you can't do anything and if the people are with you you could do a lot with nothing and this is what they're banking on censorship and message that they vote against the public sentiment, there has to be a price to pay politically. I'm actually faculty in the government department at Cornell. I can say it's an honor to have you here. Thank my you. My honor to be here. Thank you. Um, switching gears. What's your name? Alexandra Cerrone. I actually teach European politics and fake news at Cornell, so all of this is extremely relevant. <laughs> But switching gears a bit, voter disenfranchisement is a problem for both parties and generally our democracy as a whole. And these are battles that are taking place both at, both at the national level and at the state level. Um, but these are battles that need to be fought now in anticipation of the 2020 election. And I worry that since there's so much going on, that this is something that's kind of going by the wayside. So um, what do you think we can do and what do you think kind of Congress more generally can do to ensure that voters can vote? Well, thank you so much, Madam Professor. The, uh, I just came back from Ireland and UK and actually Stuttgart to see our troops, but we were there for the 21st anniversary of the Good Friday Agreements and, of course, had conversations with the Brits about Brexit and don't bother to come see us about a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement if you harm the Good Friday Accords and do damage to Wait a minute. Stop. Did you hear that? So she was like, oh, we were going to see the troops, but we stayed there. And we told the UK 
that don't bother to come to us with a trade agreement. First of all, Nancy, you don't negotiate trade agreements. The president does. But what she did put a blanket threat to the United Kingdom that if they Brexit, you've got nothing from us. Whereas the president of the United States has been saying the opposite. Pay attention. This speech that Pelosi gave gives you all you need to know. And if people do not listen carefully, you know, they won't see it coming. So she's already told you that they will start with public sentiment. What is public sentiment? Let's start there. She told McConnell public sentiment. What does that mean? That they will start airing out the dirty laundry of anyone that votes again HR1. She hasn't mentioned HR1 yet. She is going to. Then she put a blanket threat to the UK. You Brexit and you violate these agreements that you have, the Good Friday, whatever you want to call them. All of the agreements don't come to us for trade. Who is she? She is supposed to legislate. She can legislate on trade when the trade deals come, but she cannot say no, and she does not negotiate trade. As Speaker of the House, she passes laws. She does not make deals for trade. Let's get that clear. I have no idea how these people in Congress who are supposed to be legislators have now become judge, jury, trade negotiators, secretaries of state, you know, military uh, experts, you know, everything but legislators, everything but that. They've kind of rebranded what their job is. too with Brexit and the rest. But anyway, um, we passed H.R. 1. No, let me back up for a second. We won 40 seats in a very, very deeply uh, uh, redistricted, gerrymandered electorate. Very gerrymandered by the Republicans and very voter suppressed. That was not a good atmosphere for us. And we won 40 seats. So we know that if there has to be change uh, in that. I mean, there were some uh, extenuating circumstances and difficult circumstances. One of them occasionally lives in the White House. And that helped uh, in the election. But it was about, as I said, don't talk about him. Just talk about what you have to, what is your vision? What do you know? What do you, how do you plan to do something? How do you connect with the voter? And that's how we won. So we we promised during that campaign, H.R. 1. H.R. 1 passed the House. We've sent it to the Senate, uh, House Resolution 1. And it is about ending gerrymandering, voter suppression. It's about voting, uh, passing the Voting Rights Act. It's about um, empowering small donors uh, to diminish the role of dark special interest money in politics. And it, 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 it is about addressing the uh, election leading up to election, the, the mechanics of, the ele- of an election. Okay, so now she's telling you what she wants you to know about H.R. 1. She's saying that it stops gerrymandering. It, it deals with the mechanics of it. I'll tell you the mechanics. Now, the Senate says they're not going to pass it, and it's a, a lot of stuff in the bill, and maybe they're like this, or maybe they're like that. So we're going to be breaking out one piece of it 
Okay, so they want this bill to go through like nobody's business. There are there is parts of it. I'll just read some sections of it. Uh, grants to states for poll worker recruitment and training. Uh, states will define that. Promoting voter access. Treatment of institutions of higher education. Uh, minimum notification requirements for voters for voters affected by polling. So if your polling place changed, uh, you have to have better notification requirements to let them know allowing people to just provide a sworn statement so they can vote so if you walk in there and say i sign and i swear that i am who i say i am you don't need id you can vote postage free ballots like i don't remember any postage and any ballot that i'd have to send off even when i was overseas and they were sending me ballots i didn't have to pay for it uh, reimbursements for costs. So states will be refunded through money for, um, you know, executing uh, absentee ballots. So if a state collects absentee ballots, they get rewarded for it. Are you paying attention? Voter information response system hotline. People can call in and get help to vote. Um, uh, limiting any changes in hours that everyone within one state will have the same hours for elections. Um, reauthorization of election, a real, of election assistant commission, uh, requiring the states to participate in post general election surveys. Guys, there are so many things in this uh, to ban mid-decade restricting, uh, to allowing um, a lot of voting by mail, uh, paper ballot, collection of ballots, corrective actions that they're putting forward, pilot program enabling individuals with disabilities to register to vote privately and independently at res. So people will be going to their house. This is where they go into disabled centers and just check the boxes for them and have their vote. Guys, this is insane. It is completely insane. HR1 is the tip of the corrupt iceberg. Now, after this break, we'll break it down more and I'll play some clips from McConnell and from Representative Rodney in Illinois. See you in a bit. Hello, my fellow patriots. My name is Michael Flynn Jr., and I am the proud son of General Flynn. Your support of the last two years has been incredible and will never be forgotten. If you'd like to continue supporting General Flynn, you can donate to our Legal Defense Fund. Any donation is welcome. To donate, go to www.mikeflynndefensefund.org. Thank you, and God bless America. How did you become addicted? A friend? Were you at a party and someone said, hey, try this? Then you got the cold sweats and started shaking. And the more you did it, the more it didn't work. So you switched to the needle. Now you're a train wreck. Drinking, drugging, broke. Your family hates you. And you hate you. Get out of your hell on earth now. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline today for immediate help. In many cases, your insurance may cover the costs. We can't guarantee it, but we can guarantee we have what you need to change your life for the better. Pick up your cell phone and call right now. 855-700-2978. 855-700-2978. 
855-700-2978. That's 855-700-2978. Guaranteed life insurance with no medical exam. Sounds great, right? Even better, your rates will never increase and benefits will never decrease. If you're a U.S. citizen between 50 and 80, you can get life insurance guaranteed. It's not guaranteed in every state, and you may not qualify for every policy, but when you call, you'll speak with a licensed insurance company. They'll give you all the details about guaranteed life insurance. So call now, 1-800-707-1219, 1-800-707-1219. Hey, this is Leonora Cravota from Red State Talk Radio for My Pillow. I used to have trouble sleeping. My pillow changed all that. I now fall asleep within moments of my head touching my pillow. That's how comfortable my pillow is with its patented interlocking fill. My pillow stays cool and does not go flat. Plus, it's machine washable and dryable. My Pillow has a 10-year warranty and a 60-day comfort guarantee. My Pillow is also the official pillow of the National Sleep Foundation, and it's made right here in the USA. My Pillow is now offering Red State Talk Radio listeners a four-pack special with two premium standard or queen pillows and two go-anywhere pillows. That's four pillows for the price of one. To take advantage of this special offer, call 1-800-961-9194 and ask for promo code Red State. That's one 800 961-9194 promo code red state put sleepless nights behind you with my pillow the most comfortable pillow you will ever own for the best night's sleep in the whole wide world is mypillow.com Welcome back to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So I've been, I already set up some tweets. I think it's important for for me to be tweeting out during my show so I can give you those tidbits of information as we go along. Now listen to what else she says about HR1 before I break out to analyzing what, um, Rodney Davis from Illinois had said on it and, uh, what Mitch McConnell had said. Take a listen. That is uh, to ensure the security of our elections. Zoe Lofkin, who's the chair of the, another committee involved, uh, not one of the six, but uh, involved in uh, election integrity, uh, Zoe Lofkin of California is the chair of that, and she is uh, going to be introducing that bill this week. Because this, this, uh, the assault, whether it's hacking or whether it's playing with people's minds uh, in terms of how they... Uh, uh, just campaign and involvement of, of the Russians once again, uh, we have to address that. And we would hope that it would have, it would be nonpartisan, that it wouldn't be partisan. Now, you heard how the president was uh, casual on the phone with Putin, who he said smiled when he was talking. I don't know what kind of phone they have that he could see him smiling, but he must have been laughing at us. And that's what he interpreted as must have been laughing at us when the subject came up of uh, Russian involvement in our elections. But they were, and they will be, and they are. So um, this is of the highest priority, and it's not going by the by, but it, it involves a great deal of technological as well as uh, uh, how can I say, social media sophistication about how to, uh, to deal with it. But it, it, this is as fundamental to preserving our democracy as any subject you can name is protecting the integrity. And that is what we are determined to do. Now, mind you, 
in the last election, before the last election, Republicans refused uh, to accept our uh, appropriations for money to the states to protect the integrity of the election. They don't want to investigate or let us know the extent of the Russian involvement in the election. Why? Why? But I do think there are a number of Republicans out there in the public who do care about that, and that public sentiment hopefully will help us get something passed in the Senate. But nonetheless, put it out there with clarity. I mean, maybe H.R. 1, it's fabulous. It has many facets. But putting it out there on its own, you're either for election integrity or you're not. And that's the uh, public debate that we want to have. All right, so we had to call an audible because the speaker actually has to leave a little earlier than originally uh, anticipated. So I know there are many questions. Well, how about we do this? Okay. Also a good option. You know, actually, we don't need to listen to those questions because they'll just irritate me and I'll be more irritated. I wanted you guys to listen to the House Judiciary Committee hearing, which is called For the People Act. That's what they're calling it. Take a listen to what this guy says it does. This is kind of a more bipartisan approach, but he makes it clear. Power over elections from the states to the federal government in the history of the nation. Regarding the proposal, we can certainly agree on a number of things. First, it has never been easier to register to vote and to vote in America than it is in 2019. In fact, it is difficult to avoid opportunities to register to vote. Not only is registration offered every single time you go to a motor voter office, Americans are offered registration in social service agencies, post offices, county courthouses, outside of grocery stores, county libraries, Marine Corps recruitment stations, in jails, online, in high school, in church, in mobile registration vans, on your front porch when you're visited, and at Lollapalooza, and pursuant to various settlements the Department of Justice has entered into in the last few years, even in drug treatment facilities. It is harder to avoid opportunities to register to vote than it is to register to vote. Second, H.R. 1 radically transforms the constitutional relationship between the states and the federal government. It strips powers from states to run their own elections. Under the Constitution, states are strongly presumed to have the power to establish the rules that H.R. 1 seeks to take away. There is a reason that states were given power to run their own elections. Namely, decentralization promotes freedom. The Constitution decentralized control over elections to the states because when power is centralized, a single malevolent actor can exert improper or dangerous control over the process. This is not wild speculation. This is a simple historical fact. Decentralized elections are more democratic because each state develops systems more suited to the wishes of their citizens. The Constitution gives power over elections to the states. It says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senator and representatives shall be prescribed by each state legislature. So listen to what he's saying. Okay, we can agree that it's very easy to vote, yet their bill addresses the fact that it's not easy to vote. And here's the point. They want to start sending people to people's houses that are disabled or to long-term care facilities to take their votes. 
So let's pretend they go to a nursing home where there's voters, but they don't have the capacity because they have Alzheimer's, dementia, or they have some cognitive impairment or they're developmentally disabled. What are the Democrats going to do? Send their um, federal election officials and give them a pre-filled ballot and just show up to pretend that they're getting their signature? That's the question. This is how far they want to take it, guys, that people could just swear with no identification, I am who I say I am, reward states for collecting absentee ballots with money and sending people out to people's homes if they can't get to a poll. So here's the deal. Those that can't get to a poll and are of sound mind know to mail in their ballot, don't they? But that's not good enough for the Democrats. In addition, like he said, they're trying to centralize it, meaning federal government has full authority over elections, not the states. Decentralization of that power of uh, overseeing elections is very, very important. And for them to even touch that and sequester it under their own guise, because remember, in this bill, if they sequester the power that the federal government now oversees all elections and tells every single state how they're going to elect and, and appoints their own officials in this bill... They even say that the party that's in power at that time, so if it's a Republican or if it's a Democratic candidate, that they get to pick, they get to pick the majority seats on the FEC. So they will be staffing the Federal Electoral Committee themselves. So it'll be their own people overseeing the elections. And if they want to win, their own people will turn a blind eye to the BS that they'll be doing. In addition, it's adding corporate and tax dollars legally allowing to fund campaigns. Uh, and let me just let him finish up, and you guys need to listen to the next guy. Hold on. Described by the state. Here we go. I'll just put the next guy. Administration, elections to campaign finance, judicial ethics, and lobbying. Uh, my testimony today is only limited to those provisions over which the Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction and not those subject to other committees. In summary... Many of the provisions of H.R. 1 are clearly unconstitutional. Others are redundant and unnecessary, covering areas that existing federal law already covers. Many are just bad policy that will neither help voters nor election officials in administering a fair and secure voter registration and election process. It also interferes with the ability of states to determine the qualifications of their voters, to secure the integrity of the election process, and to determine the districts and boundary lines of their congressional representatives. Overall, it federalizes and micromanages the election process and imposes unnecessary, unwise, and in some cases... Okay, I'm just going to pause it there. Listen to his words. So what he's saying is, is that this bill will not allow a state to say who is a legal voter. So if the Democrats, let's say, were in control and this bill has actually passed, they could tell my state of North Dakota, illegal immigrants can vote. And North Dakota says that's against our Constitution. I don't care. It's federal law. It trumps your state. So done. On top of that, they could say, whoa, you know, Senator Kramer, he has a lot of Republicans there. Maybe we should shift his district. I'm just saying, right? So we can get a few Democrats in there. Maybe we can sequester it so there's only one Senate seat 
and one House seat for that state. We don't need three electoral votes on that end. Let's just get rid of it altogether. They just deserve one based on population. And California will get an additional 20 because we're drawing the lines and we say so. This is how you fix an election. This is an election fix and they're trying to make it law. This is the scariest piece of legislation I've seen come through in my lifetime. Is unconstitutional mandates on the states. Uh, I can't cover an almost 600-page bill in five minutes, so I'll just point out a few of these problems. For example, Section, 7, uh, section 1071 uh, prohibits corruptly preventing another person from registering to vote. Well, federal law already uh, prohibits such behavior. It's a criminal violation of the NVRA to prevent someone from registering to vote or voting or attempting to register to vote. And punishment includes not only a fine, but up to five years in prison. It's also a criminal violation of Section 11B of the VRA to threaten, intimidate, or coerce any person for voting or attempting to vote. Section 1201 prohibits election officials from using the Postal Service's National Change of Address System to verify the address of registered voters. Nothing about this verification process is either sinister or suspect. Instead, the National Voter Registration Act, which this Congress passed, expressly sanctions this activity. Congress previously determined, quite correctly, that the Postal Service database would help election officials identify registered voters who've moved out of their district. Section 1401 forces the states to restore the ability of felons to vote the moment they are released from prison. This provision is clearly unconstitutional. The issue isn't whether this is good state, good public policy. The point is that Congress cannot override the Constitution with a federal statute. And the 14th Amendment explicitly gives the states the right to take away the abilities of felons to vote in both state and federal elections and decide when to restore the right. If Congress wants to do this, you have to pass a constitutional amendment. Okay, so getting felons to vote, because we're hearing it a lot from Warren, from Sanders. They want felons to vote. They need to pass it as a constitutional amendment. They can't make a law and then debate it. You can't change the Constitution. Yet they're telling idiots out there, oh, yes, we can't. Because according to Pelosi, who now has the gavel, Congress not only changes the Constitution, they're in charge of trade deals and foreign relations and their judge and jury, and they throw threats to our, air quote, allies and actual allies and enemies and to our own elected officials. This is the way it is. And just so you know, another thing, and I accidentally closed the window, what he goes on to say is in this bill, it allows the, um, it allows Congress to literally go and sue the president as an individual for any campaign issues they might have. I want you guys to know that if this happened during the time of Obama and he didn't have and he didn't have Robert Bauer from Perkins Coy to support him because he had one of the biggest election violation fines ever when he ran, he would have been impeached. And the guy says, well, that's not right because you didn't do this to Obama and he's had the biggest election finance, right? Finance, $3 million worth, guys. It's incredible what they're doing. Now, I want you to listen 
to um, Rodney Davis of Illinois. Take a listen to what he says, because this is imperative you understand it. This bill, however, uh, is a very bad idea. Public funding of elections is a very bad idea. At the last second before we voted on H.R. 1, Democrats have decided they're afraid of the CBO score for their massively expensive bill. We haven't even debated it and want to hide it from consideration in this chamber. So they created this gimmick called the Freedom from Influence Fund, which is proposed to add an additional 2.75% penalty against lawbreaking or malfeasant corporations and officials of corporations. They claimed it would generate enough funds to pay the massive cost of funding political campaigns for members of Congress. But late last night, we got that CBO report, and the score that H.R. 1 that projects the impact of this, this new shell game called the Freedom from Influence Fund and its proposed funding source, corporate fines, again, voting for this bill will allow corporate money to, for the first time, be lawful to flow into the campaigns of each and every one of us in this institution. Are you listening to that? That means companies like CNN, corporate companies like Facebook, Twitter, Walmart can literally legally fund campaigns, unlimited amount of dollars to fund campaigns. And here's the thing. It doesn't discriminate. It's not just the Democrats. It's the rhinos, too. They get to line their pockets. So this is where it's a threat. And this um, discussion happened on my birthday, March 8th, 2019, when the Senate killed the bill, and I'll close that with um, McConnell's. But take a listen to what else Rodney says. The CBO score tells a very different story from what Democrats want you to believe. According to the CBO, this new fund would result in a reduction of income and payroll taxes, meaning corporations will have less money to spend on their payrolls, which equates to less jobs. To quote the CBO report, the assessment on civil monetary penalties and settlements would reduce the base for income and payroll taxes. Consequently, the revenues from the assessments would be partially offset by lower income and payroll taxes. Put another way, H.R. 1 takes American jobs away in order to fund the campaign coffers of members of Congress. Furthermore, the CBO notes that as a result of this funding source, less money will av be available for other government programs that we want to prioritize in this institution. I quote again from the CBO report, CBO and JCT expect the increased assessment of criminal and civil penalties would reduce the amount of penalties and settlements collected under current law. The CBO report confirms what Republicans have been saying all along. H.R. 1 is a shell game that will, in the end, hurt taxpayers because this proposal to publicly fund campaigns will be funded by the taxpayers. However, you're going to likely hear Democrats say instead that this fund will run at a surplus over the first few years of its, of its existence, which is true because they designed the bill to not make any expenditures for the first six years of this program. But pay very close attention. What the Democrats won't tell you is that once the fund starts making its expenditures, the fund will be nearly broke in five years. And that's assuming that the cost of running campaigns will stay static today and not exponentially increase like it has. Again, Democrat, this Democratic funding gimmick was concocted just to result in a more desirable CBO score. I don't see that as the result. 
The new fund will collect money for six years with no expenditures, resulting in the accumulation of a large balance. And then once the money starts flowing to every member of Congress in this institution, it's going to run out in five years. Democrats should be ashamed for making this bill H.R. 1. When Republicans took over this institution after 50 years in the minority, our H.R. 1 was the Congressional Accountability Act to make Congress work better. H.R. 1 in the last Congress put more money in the pockets of middle-class taxpayers, families back home. This H.R. 1, this H.R. 1 will do nothing but put taxpayer dollars in the campaign funds of every member of Congress, and that is not acceptable to me, and that is why we should have a no vote on H.R. 1. Did you guys hear that? So basically their HR1 is just to ensure that they get reelected. And here's the thing. They want to stockpile the money for six years because they anticipate that 2020 is out the window for them, even though they're going to try really hard. Uh, They'll have all the other laws implemented, but the money they can't use, which means by 2024, that fund will have billions upon billions, if not a trillion dollars in money so they can take over 2024 elections. This is pure insanity. Take a listen to how Mitch McConnell put it forward in the Senate to kill it. Um, I spoke for the first time yesterday on the subject that House Democrats have crowned their signature effort for this Congress, H.R. 1, also known as the Democratic Politician Protection Act. Speaker Pelosi and her colleagues are advertising it as a package of urgent measures to save American democracy. What it really seems to be is a package of urgent measures to rewrite the rules of American politics for the exclusive benefit of the Democratic Party. Yesterday, I gave a brief tour through several of the most bizarre components of their proposal. Today, I'd like to focus on just one of the legislation's major victims, the American taxpayer. H.R. 1 would victimize every American taxpayer by pouring their money into expensive new subsidies that don't even pass the life test. In several new ways, it would put every taxpayer on the hook to line the pockets of candidates, campaigns, and outside consultants. Do you look forward to bumper stickers, robocalls, attack ads, and campaign mail that descend on the country in seemingly endless cycles? Speaker Pelosi must think you do, because she wants you to pay for these things with your tax dollars. You get the opportunity with your money to pay for attack ads and bumper stickers and the rest. This bill creates brand new government subsidies, government subsidies both for political campaign donors and for the campaigns themselves. The federal government would start matching political donations the same way some employers match gifts to to charity. You'd be literally funding attack ads for the candidates you disagree with. How about that? Your money funding ads for the candidates you disagree with. Maybe that's why every Democrat opposed our tax cuts for middle-class families and small businesses. They were counting on that money to pull off this stimulus package, if you will, for campaign consultants. It's incredible, what isn't reason? it, guys? To increase competition? Well, no, studies have shown that elections. incumbents win just as often in taxpayer-funded elections 
as they do when campaigns are funded with private money. To reduce corruption? Hardly. Jurisdictions that have toyed with taxpayer-funding political systems have turned out to be replete with misappropriation, personal use, straw donors, and public corruption scandals. So I remain curious why exactly the Democratic Political Protection Act wants to offer the American people's money to thousands of candidates that run for the House of Representatives every two years, whether they support these candidates or not. They want citizens to bankroll political materials that they totally disagree with. But they aren't stopping there, Mr. President. Democrats also want taxpayers on the hook for generous new benefits for federal bureaucrats and government employees. This is what their, their bill, bill would is. make Election Day a new paid holiday for government workers. My gosh. And created an additional brand new paid leave benefit for up to six days for any federal bureaucrat who decides they'd like to hang out at the polls during any election. Just what America needs, another paid holiday and a bunch of government workers being paid to go out and work. I assume our folks on our colleagues on the other side on their campaigns. This is the Democrat plan to restore democracy. A brand new week of paid vacation for every federal employee who'd like to hover around while you cast your ballot. A Washington-based taxpayer-subsidized clearinghouse for political campaign funding. A power grab that's smelling more and more like exactly what it is. That's Judge Andrew Napolitano guys. of Fox News. Guys, this is incredible. The Democrats are literally looking for us to take our tax money to put it into this slush fund that they can access to finance campaigns from any side of the aisle, supposedly. But obviously, we know where it's going. And this will allow for more instances of fraud, of misuse of campaign money. Right now, we have an independent federal electoral committee, and they want to be able to pick the people on that panel. So that five-person panel will have the majority of the party that's currently in power. So it would mean that the Republicans would have power now, and if the Democrats are then elected, they get to pick the committee. This is unacceptable. The reason they're doing it is because if they pass this bill, then they can pick the FEC and then they can go forward on crushing campaigns of Republicans for 2020. A hard no on H.R. 1. Make sure you tell your senator. Make sure you tell your congressman everything. It, it has to be a no across the board or else we're taking names. I'll see you guys after the break where we'll discuss CNN going broke. They're closing down global units and the Arctic Council and why it's important and why the meeting with Merkel was canceled. I'll see you all in just a few after this break. Welcome to Red State Talk Radio.
You're listening to Tori Says. For the next hour, I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, unfiltered news. Real news. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, This is the second hour. The first hour, we talked about HR1, which is very important. It is just coming in slowly. Lofton is going to be presenting that. This is a very big deal. Our eyes should be on the rhinos. Now, I thought before we end it with our more global politics and what's really going on, uh, I just want to reinforce the anticipation for the next 72 hours uh, where Comey's indictment is to be revealed. Now, uh, word on the street is that this indictment should be revealed tomorrow afternoon, evening. Hence, uh, you know, Thursday, uh, Comey will be on Anderson Cooper to give his side of the story. So it's all been planned. I guess um, I know that those are being uh, Comey and Brennan's um, indictments uh, from the grand jury is actually being transferred to the courts at the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, Still waiting to know on the date. But my assumption is, okay, my educated guess is, is that um, it will be popping tomorrow uh, afternoon around 5 p.m. or early morning Thursday, which will allow Comey to discuss, air quote, his side of the story. And this kind of goes hand in hand with this whole Ray BS. Ray said that he didn't have any personal evidence. That doesn't mean there isn't evidence. And he said that he wouldn't use the word spying. Come on, he's the director of the FBI. It's not like he could say, yup, spying. You know, uh, showing covert actions of the FBI and illegal actions of the FBI. He is the director. He needs to keep face, right? So let's start on a happy note. Happy note is I've been waiting for this to come out. I've been making hints, throwing hints, tweeting hints. Hey, look, Statler, you can go back a couple weeks. Statler is advertising that he needs a producer. He needs a producer. Well, the producer job only pays about $14 an hour. Nobody wants to work. Now, if you remember, CNN was bought out by AT&T, global giant. They've got the monopoly, DirecTV. The thing is, CNN is not making money. Advertisers have pulled out, and that is because the people have spoken. They have spoken, and they've said, we don't want fake news. Nobody is advertising. Hotels, restaurants, and airports no longer have CNN on top. No one is watching them anymore. Nobody cares. Actually, you know, NBC is writing that coattail because they don't want to just have Fox. And so they're throwing in some NBC and NBC will go bust. I guarantee you by 2020 NBC, not 
2022, NBC will be gone. Now, as far as CNN, I can tell you that their CNN affiliates that are overseas have already been bought out by lo- local companies. So Sky Television have purchased rights to CNN. Um, you know, in this way, uh, Disney can make some money back. Uh, they're uh, taking on CNN uh Real estate, you would say. Uh, this has happened in the Philippines. This has happened in Russia, in India, in Africa. C- CNN in Australia has downsized. They are going down. No one trusts CNN anymore. And, you know, the fact that Sattler's like, oh, well, it's just voluntary buyouts. No, 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 no. Voluntary buyouts. The only reason you would have that is so that way they can sign non-disclosure agreements and not say that they were forced to be bought out of their contract. Journalists around the world, media correspondents around the world, they are going broke and the people have spoken. They have spoken. CNN is done for. The only thing they have is to pander to idiots like the idiots that you heard asking questions from Pelosi at Cornell. Clowns that really believe that this Russia collusion delusion is real, that the Democrats are all about democracy when it's all about socialism. It's all about the money. It's all about the Benjamins for them. And it's all about taking uh, an extreme position of power. I mean, uh, the the House Democrats, specifically Pelosi, I don't know, does she think that gavel is like some staff of Zeus or something? She just assumes that she could do anything she wants. She doesn't have to legislate. Her job is to be a legislator and nothing more. Nothing more. CNN is broke. CNN is going down. And so your money has spoken. Your ears and eyes have spoken. And you have told uh, investors and advertisers where you will be spending your dollar. You know, I had this simple conversation with my daughter. She was like, we should go to this store and just buy a lot of like, you know, Nike stuff. I was like, um, Nike is banned from the house. The minute that they funded a guy that did nothing but suck at football, but kneel at a game, they don't get a penny of my money. Now, if you want to fund a company like that, even though, you know what, you're going to spend a thousand dollars for them, that's still a thousand more than they had yesterday. And I am unwilling to do so. This is what people should be doing, taking stands like this, deciding to choose something else as opposed to what they have. Now, one might say, well, you're a hypocrite. You go to Starbucks. Yeah. Starbucks doesn't really bother me. Uh, Starbucks has bought out other companies. Starbucks has backpedaled every single thing they've done. Their open toilet policy or you don't have to buy and stay here has changed now they kick bums out and they don't let them just live there uh you know anymore and they have a no toilet policy now so um and that's from portland right so if you go to the square to the starbucks where it's really big like right by the square um you know, homeless people used to hang out there all the time when they started this whole rule that you don't have to buy, we're accepting and everything. When when bums were in the showers, in, in the bathroom, showering over a sink and taking up the place, uh, you know, they had customers not going there anymore. So they decided, damn, this policy is not working. We're losing money. Sorry. We're going to backpedal a little bit. Uh, so... The companies that backpedal on their policies, I'm okay funding because they're not going to survive it. Nike never backpedaled. Nike never said, I'm sorry. Nike never did anything. Well, <laughs> look where Nike is now. Speaking of Nike, 
We will be revisiting Avenatti tomorrow. I hear a lot going through. Um, I can tell you that his personal email server has now been shut down. I know this because I've emailed him, hey, I'd like you on my show. And he hasn't responded. And my last email that I sent yesterday, religiously, you know, I wait you know, a week and a half for a response, of course, came back saying that server does no, no longer exists. So Avenatti has been wiped clean. Now, where do we start? Let's start off with um, Pompeo. Okay. So I like Pompeo. Pompeo is pretty badass. Uh, and at the Arctic Council, he did really, really well. I watched the whole uh, speech. I also saw a few pictures. I felt like so bad, like the finish. Uh, the Arctic nations that sat down and ate and they were kind of the delegations. It looked like so cheap and badly put together. Like they had tables put together, like to make it look like a big table. And then they had one person sitting. It just was like the most awkward thing ever. And I was like, who put this event together? It looks like something my kid could do a better job than that. Like setting the table for them and how they seated them. It was just really sad. Anyway, so uh, he went to the Arctic Council and spoke. Uh, I'll get to that. I have a few clips to play. He was very strong and very um, uh, solid on things. And there's a lot that people don't seem to understand. And it is that the Arctic region is so rich with resources. It's ridiculous. They have 30% of the words oil, uranium, gas, gold, silver, precious metals keep going and going. Nature-wise, I mean, there's so much exploration to do. It is a gold mine. And there's only eight Arctic nations, right? And we're one of them because we have Alaska. But anyway... Let's first focus on the fact that after this meeting, he was supposed to be meeting today with Merkel. Now, the discussions they were going to have was about Iran. Now, it seems that uh, Germany is an ally of Iran because they are refusing to comply with sanctions and they are refusing to come into any discussion in regards to killing this fake uh, nuclear deal. So Pompeo himself was going to meet with the foreign minister, Heiko Maas, right? And Chancellor Merkel. Um, He actually canceled it on short notice, which means yesterday, right after the meeting. And that was after sidebar talk with Lavrov from Russia. So um, Lavrov and Pompeo had like a sidebar meeting. It was like an hour uh, private meeting between themselves where they had some discussions Um, And the only statement that came out from the office of the State Department was, regrettably, we have to postpone the visit to Berlin because of urgent matters. We look forward to arranging a new date for these important discussions. The foreign minister is looking forward to coming to Berlin soon. Um, And it's not the foreign minister. It is the the secretary of state. But this is um, I I was translating a German article, uh, interpreting it. Well, it's translating because I was reading it and telling you. Because, yes, I speak some German. I can read and write it a lot better, obviously. So anyway, um, so basically Pompeo's uh, office gave that statement. uh, And it was done on very short notice right after his meeting with the Russians. And this would probably infer that something else is uh, cooking up. Uh, Apparently, Pompeo 
was supposed to meet with Merkel in mass uh, late uh, today, late afternoon. They were going to talk about the Ukraine because, you know, they manu- Germany was the one that manufactured that issue with the Ukraine and caused them to not be able to import from Russia. They were going to talk about Venezuela, Iran, and Syria, as well as the relationship the European Union and specifically Germany has with Russia and China. Now, um, Germany, Berlin themselves, kind of came back and just um, reiterated that, uh, you know, the meeting had been canceled. And what the German press is calling it is a refusal to meet without giving the details. So something's up there, and my bet is on the meeting with Lavrov. So, uh, you know, the German sentiment is that relationships between Germany, uh, the relationship between Germany and the United States have been very tense since President Donald J. Trump was elected and uh, and then uh, further sworn in uh, because he has called them out for not uh, paying their fair share uh, for NATO. And he's he's also criticizing them on how they're putting sanctions against Russia, yet, you know, they are funding and um, paying money to the um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is from Germany to Russia uh, gaining gas, right? So here's where they go from Germany, Ukraine to Russia. But it's like, if you're sanctioning them, why are you siphoning and buying oil from them? And if you're paying for this pipeline and you're making Russia pay for this pipeline, it's contradictory to what you can do in regards to sanctions. So it's, um, it's that they're double dipping in a way. And, um, on top of that, the president has also, uh, threatened to put punitive tariffs, um, to Germany because they have a surplus in trade, just so you know. Now, Pompeo uh, he it, it was his first time that he was going to visit um, Germany himself. And um, in February, he was supposed to be going again to Germany to the Munich Security Conference because he was in Europe at the time, um, but um, he didn't. Now, Maas, the foreign minister of Germany, has uh, many times said that it is necessary that Germany and the United States work together, even though they don't see eye to eye. And, you know, President Trump has stated his position that in order for us to see eye to eye, you got to be paying your fair share in military spending. You can't just expect us to foot the bill when you're lavished in riches, um, you know, poncing off of, you know, you EU member states that you've literally bought out like they own countries. So, uh, you know, there's uh, major international issues that they have and conflicts, and they need to start discussing them. Uh, Because remember, it was Germany that gave cash, cash, a plane full of cash in 2017 to Iran. So Germany is hoping to get a really good connection with Washington. But on the other hand, all their actions seem to be not favorable for the American agenda, for America first, and to promote peace, prosperity, and healthy competition. The Germans are all about 
dominating and literally purchasing countries. I mean, you can ask Portugal, you can ask Spain, you can ask Greece and Italy how that worked out for them. So um, this was canceled. Now, word on the street is something happened during this Russian meeting uh, and Pompeo has to address something else. Now, in regards to his further travel, we don't know what he's doing or where he's going. So it's a little bit like, what's going on here? Um, but, you know, the EU is adamant about holding on to Iran so tightly as a buddy that it makes you wonder, do they have better allegiance to Iran or to the whole NATO idea? Because we have no problem exiting NATO. I think it would actually benefit us quite much. Now, um... I think it is important that what we do today is discuss the Arctic Council. So where is the Arctic, right? It's the North Pole. And I talked about it a little bit yesterday since he was going. I've told you how I've been to Banno, Alaska. That's like considered the North Pole. A lot of research goes on there. But what's interesting is what was said uh, during uh, the speech and, you know, putting the foot down and um, just in general, the air of discussion. Uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, made it clear that uh, Russia has very aggressive behavior. I'll analyze that. Um, and he also said how important uh, the Arctic Council is. I wanted to play uh, the Arctic Council video that the State Department put together. This is from the U.S. State Department. State in 60 seconds, Arctic Council. For many people around the globe, I think they think of the Arctic and they start to envision polar bears, icebergs. Um, while, yes, that vision is very beautiful, they're missing a really big piece of the picture. And that is that people live there and they have for tens of thousands of years. The area is experiencing change at twice the rate of other regions of the world. All of a sudden, there's new business interests. There's new access to natural resources. There are new shipping lanes opening up. The changes that the Arctic is experiencing right now and the fast rate of climate change and the impacts that are associated with it, many of those are not then constrained to the Arctic. The changes that the Arctic is experiencing, those then come down to the lower 48 and to other areas of the globe. The U.S. chairmanship program is really ambitious, but it's also very well balanced. So the main pillars of the chairmanship are climate change and addressing its impacts, improving the economic and living conditions of the people of the region, and also working on Arctic Ocean safety, security, and stewardship. Okay, so just so you guys know, this was when John Kerry was Secretary of State that was put together. Number one, climate change was not mentioned at all by Secretary Pompeo, to the dismay of all the money-grabbing um, nations that are a part of it. Uh, the Arctic Council, like I said, has um, eight uh, members, and that's Canada, Denmark, the Kingdom of Denmark, Kingdom of Denmark, because then that means the Faroe Islands and Greenland are included. Greenland, like I said, that nobody talks about. It's called the Kingdom of Denmark, not Denmark, the EU state, the Kingdom of Denmark. Did you guys know that Denmark was a kingdom? Maybe we should talk about the kingdoms one day. I should do a show on that. Okay, so it's Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the United States. And the United States kind of joined um, 
after, well, they were part of it because they were uh, using uh, the passes and stuff. But um, in 1857, when we purchased Alaska and added it, you know, that solidified our membership into the Arctic uh, Council. So the Arctic Council means that the Arctic region uh, is only claimed by uh, these eight members. Only the eight members can... um, take part into the Arctic Council. This is what they say. So here's the deal. That's not it. Secretary Pompeo wants countries that do not have claim to the Arctic region to be able to come in and um, do business because it is a business venture. Again, 30% of the planet's oil that has not been tapped into yet is in the Arctic region. 30% of natural gas not tapped into yet in the Arctic region. Gold, your 35% of uranium on the globe has been located in the Arctic region and not, you know, uh, exploited yet. So we have tons in the Arctic region, and these are the eight nations that partake. Now, uh, Pompeo was very clear on uh, how certain countries are acting um, in there. Now, he didn't even mention climate change. Uh, Take a listen to what Time magazine put together about 24 minutes ago, and they titled it, Mike Pompeo Won't Mention Climate Change at the Arctic Council Summit. Take a listen. For many people around the globe, I think they think of the Arctic and they start to envision. Did you see that? They used the video from John Kerry's reign to talk about climate change because the Obama regime was talking about climate change, but that's what they did. Time republished the 2015 video. Pay attention. This is how propaganda happens. They repost information from the Obama era and then scold Pompeo for not talking about it. And obviously, it had what? Uh, John Kerry in it. Now, take a look to see the little clip that C-SPAN put together about Pompeo during that uh, council. Listen to this portion of his speech. But Russia is unique. Its actions deserve special attention. Special attention of this council, in part because of their sheer scale. But also because we know Russian territorial ambitions can turn violent. 13,000 people have been killed due to Russia's ongoing aggressive action in Ukraine. And just because the Arctic is a place of wilderness does not mean it should become a place of lawlessness. It need not be the case. And we stand ready to ensure that it does not become so. Okay, so what he's saying is, is that Russia has a big influence in the region. I want to play a clip where he starts. He only speaks for about 10 minutes. So I'm going to start it and then we'll break. And you know what? I'll run straight through the break because this is kind of important. I don't think a lot of people know anything about the Arctic Council. Here we go. Let's play this clip and I'll stop it when I need to elaborate I'm here tremendously, and you are doing an outstanding job. It's great to look at her and see uh, so many friends, too. Who would have thought I could come this far north and know this many people? 
Um, it, it's, it is heartening to me. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern California about four minutes from Disneyland, which claims to be the happiest place on earth by trademark. So uh, you, all, you all have some work to do here. Get the trademark. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, thanks especially to Foreign Minister Soini, uh, Foreign Minister Thoradson, Mickelson, uh, and Minister Bagger. I also understand we have Mayor Lotvinen here. And uh, lots of city leaders from this special place. Uh, I'm looking forward to my stay here. Uh, thanks for your hospitality, too. I'm, I'm touched by your warm welcome. This is only the second time I've had the opportunity to visit Finland. Uh, but I really do feel, as I said earlier, that I am among friends. Uh, you know, the Finnish people have a tradition of hospitality for visiting Americans. I love the story of Eleanor Roosevelt uh, and her visit to this city in 1950 to check on your post-war uh, reconstruction progress. It was short notice, and the Finns wanted to place a special, had a special place uh, for her arrival. So they had an architect design a cabin overnight and mobilize their best construction crew to build that place. Her plane touched down just as the outer door was being fitted in. The townspeople were ushered in in grand welcoming ceremony, and that cabin still stands today. So as you can see, we've been friends for an awfully long time. In Finland and the U.S., Uh, you have a pair of nations that are celebrating our 100th year of diplomatic relations. Uh, we have a lot to look back on, but also a great deal to look forward to. And I want to speak today about our future, not just about our bilateral future, but about our future in this region, here in the Arctic. And what better place to do it for me to have the opportunity to participate in the Arctic Council. Uh, it's an honor to gather here this week with fellow members, the seven other nations in addition to the United States, and the proud indigenous people. I'm not the first Secretary of State in recent memory to participate in the Arctic Council proceedings, and you can be sure that I will not be the last. I might, however, be the first to give a major address outside of those formal proceedings. And I wanted to do so because the importance of what I came here for transcends any one form. The world has a long-felt magnetic pull towards the Arctic, but never more so than today. For reasons I'll explain in a moment, the region has become an arena for power and for competition. And the eight Arctic states must adapt to this new future. In its first two decades, the Arctic Council has had the luxury of focusing almost exclusively on scientific collaboration, on cultural matters, on environmental research, all important themes, very important, and we should continue to do those. So what he's saying now is that, um, so obviously he did his little introduction, super cute, super personable. He actually looks really good. I don't know what he's doing to his skin, but he looked really good. Um, but what he also made mention is that so far we have not um, taken advantage of the uh, region. We're not developing the Arctic. We're not living in the Arctic. We're not doing anything except for experiments, research, environmental research. And we should continue to do that. But here's where the but comes in. Uh, but no longer do we have that luxury of the next 100 years. We're entering a new age of strategic engagement in the Arctic, complete with new threats to the Arctic and its real estate and to all of our interests in that region. Now, I just want to say, so what he's saying is, is that, 
you know, we're not going to sit here and just look at the place and observe polar bears and look at glaciers and get ice cores. This is real estate. We're expanding in population. We're expanding in tolerances. Technology has allowed us to live in more uh, cold environments. I mean, look at North Dakota. I mean, we're actually colder than Alaska where I'm at sometimes. I mean, we had negative 70 degree Fahrenheit temperatures this uh, winter. So, you know, what he's saying is, is that, uh, you know, not only is the real estate a thing and that there's a market there and he's going to go into it, but there are also new threats and he's correct. Because something people don't know is that in 2014, Russia made a claim that they're expanding their military operations in the Arctic. And he so nicely and eloquently puts it together by saying that the Russians are leaving a military boot imprint in the snow because they are. They have their subs, their nukes in the region. Uh, You know how rich in resources it is from fisheries to to. Uh, minerals and um, precious metals and there's actually real estate it's not just ice for some reason people just think it's ice it's land and I made mention of this because Antarctica is going to come back to the scene that if you actually look at the Antarctica the Antarctic uh, continents treaty only half of it is being claimed. The other half, no one's really talking about it. No one has claim to it. So like if I go there and put a flagpole, I can call it my own because no one's claimed it. There is literally unclaimed land on this planet. And um, part of Antarctica is that. I just wanted to mention that because Antarctica will be coming back into discussion soon. And I also wanted to say, you know, most of the flat earthers are all about the earth being flat only because, well, how would governments fight over little slivers of portions of the continent and not bother with the other side? One might say it's just ice. Well, we could say the same thing about the Arctic, but we have a council and every single iceberg is accounted for. So that's just food for thought. Okay, let's take a listen to what he further says, because he talks about threats in the region, and the threats are Russia and China. Before we sit down for tomorrow's formal council meetings, I want to give a voice to a sense of what's at stake and what I think we can do together about it. Let's start with the most fundamental principle. The United States is an Arctic nation. But even before the purchase of Alaska, our interests here stretched back centuries. Indigenous peoples have lived in the Arctic for generations, well before there was an America to speak of. In the 1730s, winters from New, excuse me, whalers from New England traveled the Davis Strait between Canada and Greenland. In the 1800s, our polar explorers were celebrities. The funeral procession for one of them Alicia Kent Kane was said to be the second largest of the century, bested only by the Lincolns. Alaska was purchased by the United States in 1857, and the deal was, over, was completed by Secretary of State William Seward. After he retired, Seward, wasted, excuse me, Seward was asked, what's the greatest contribution he made during his long and very distinguished career? He had to quiver, he had to uh, pause for just one moment to say that the purchase of Alaska was my most important undertaking, but it will take a, the country a generation to truly appreciate that. Now here we are, multiple generations later. This is our time to appreciate it like never before. This is America's moment to stand up as an Arctic nation and for the Arctic's future. Because far from the barrier, 
barren backcountry that many thought it to be in Seward's time, the Arctic is at the forefront of opportunity and abundance. It houses 13% of the world's undiscovered oil, 30% of its undiscovered gas, and an abundance of uranium, rare earth minerals, gold, diamonds, and millions of square miles of untapped resources. Fisheries galore. Okay, so he said 13% of the um, undiscovered oil. I just wanted to make mention of that um, because it's important for you guys to understand that we've discovered most of the oil there. 13% is undiscovered, and that's by the Canadian regions. And he actually takes a stab at Canada at some point. I don't know if he does it here. Hold on. The Davis Strait between Canada and Greenland. In the 1800s, our polar explorers were celebrities. So the okay. So I wanted to say that, um, and and I don't think it's during this; it's during comments. But uh, Canada has made claim to a passage through the Arctic, and he says they don't have a right to just say it's mine because so many explorers has gone through it. It's supposed to be an open passage for the whole Arctic Council. So he's put his foot down on people claiming territory and saying, this is my territory. I own that passage. You can't go. And the reason he says this is because China has created their own new passages. And I uh, tweeted out uh, a statement he made, which is, you know, the melting ice is great because it affords new passages. And climate changers are losing their mind oh my gosh, the ice caps are melting and now he's saying it's a good thing because there's new passages. Yeah, because now we have more land showing and people claim that because the ice caps are melting, which is inevitable because a planet goes through its own circadian rhythms and the polar caps, uh, I'm not saying that they defrost completely, but there are portions that actually don't stay as frozen as they are. Uh, Sometimes they actually are finding that they're having better summers as opposed to others and that is we can we can see that from the ice cores like the ice cores that pulled it up had found that at this day and age if we look at the rhythms of the planet in itself because the circadian rhythm is kind of like your flow your daily flow when do you peak when do you trough you know your flow how it goes well the flow of oxygen and uh, carbon in the atmosphere the circadian rhythm of it, we're actually under par. So we have less carbon in the atmosphere right now than we should. Um, And it's not peaking as it should. So there are points in time where carbon was extremely high. And that was during the... um, the dinosaur period, just so you guys know, and this is why plants were extremely tall, and this is why there was then a big push of oxygen, because suddenly you had a lot of plant life coming out. They use carbon dioxide, and they release what? Oxygen. And so with that abundance of oxygen, we saw huge animals. Why? Because they need oxygen. They need a lot of oxygen. So when oxygen was at a higher percentage rate, maybe the same as carbon, maybe 20% in the atmosphere, dinosaurs could exist. And the reason I say this is because there's a lot of people that believe in stuff like crap, like the, like Jurassic Park. Make no mistake. If we were to recreate a dinosaur today, it would not be able to survive because there is not enough oxygen in our atmosphere to have it survive big bugs would not survive because bugs use lymph to move along you know that's their blood circulatory system let's say 
and they use air pressure to breathe. So they have holes on their bodies and air pressure, oxygen pressure, air pressure moves it. So less oxygen means less pressure, which means smaller bugs. Just so that we're clear, I feel... (laughs) Okay, I I guess my undergrad in, you know, molecular and cellular biology helps here. But that is exactly <clears throat> what I'm, I'm I'm trying to put out is the stuff that you read on climate change and how they're panicking because it's melting is complete BS. Our ice cores show that there is a different t- <laughs> that the that the temperatures and the landscape in the arctic change every every so hundreds and thousands of years kind of like we have ice ages and non-ice ages etc right so pompeo made it clear that the ice melting is allowing for more passages and allowing us to be able to fester there and to create a healthy market in fact he's promoting the idea of countries that are not part of the arctic council that they should be able to participate as long as they align with uh the goals and they would allow investment hold on let me fast forward to somewhere steady reductions in sea ice are opening new passageways and new opportunities for trade so listen to it of untapped resources fisheries galore and its centerpiece the arctic ocean is rapidly taking on new strategic significance offshore resources which are helping their respective coastal states are the subject of renewed competition steady reductions in sea ice are opening new passageways and new opportunities for trade So he's saying steady reductions in sea ice are opening up new passageways and reduction for trade. There was a show that I was watching on TV. I forgot the name of it. It was a boat name. The Amist. Darn it. I don't remember. But when it comes on for season two, I'll remember. Where it shows British people going through the Arctic for exploration and how they were stuck because the ice formed around their boat and they had to like walk to St. George's or something in Canada or find their way through polar bears. And there was like some mystical indigenous being or something that was eating people. Anyway, I found it pretty interesting because it's history. But regardless, the point is, is that the ice melting within the water is allowing us to explore and use the resources This could potentially slash the time it takes to travel between Asia and the West by as much as 20 days. So, yeah, that's that's important. So this show as well was trying to find a route from London to China that would have been shorter than going around through the Panama Canal um, and then out to Asia. And he's right. It would give us a more direct route for shipping. So we would have shipping companies instead of going from the States railroad to the east and then shipping companies pick up in New York and then send it over to Europe on ship. It would be one ship that would go through the Arctic and boom, it's in, it's in Europe. So there's better trade. There's better and faster trade, not just for us, but for other nations. Arctic sea lanes could come before the, could come the 21st century Suez and Panama canals. And that leads me to my second point. The second point is this, to leverage the Arctic's, the Arctic continental, all nations, including non-Arctic nations, should have a right to engage peacefully in this region. The United States is a believer in free markets. We know from experience that free and fair competition, open by the rule of law, produces the best outcomes. But all the parties in the marketplace have to play by those same rules. Those who violate 
those rules should lose their rights to participate in that marketplace. And he's This is important. The United States has the advantage of being one of eight nations that have claim to the Arctic. Nobody else does. And so his point is countries that are not part of the Arctic Council should be allowed to invest, should be allowed to um, do business, should be allowed to pass through the straits. Because could you imagine if the Chinese, the Chinese don't have, but let's pretend Moscow, right? So we've got Russia and we've got the United Kingdom and they strike a trade route deal from Russia to the United Kingdom through the Arctic Pass. Now, shippers that are in Africa or South America would lose a lot of money to transport goods from Europe over to Asia because they won't be allowed to use the Arctic Passage. So in immediately, Russia and the United Kingdom or Denmark or Finland or the United States have a monopoly on moving goods faster. This is, this is an issue, right, guys? We have to be considerate. And the United States is saying uh, we have to allow other people to play as long as they play by the rules. And it's a free and open market. Just because we own it doesn't mean that we should monopolize it and cause the other countries the inability to use it. Respect and transparency are the price of admission. And let's talk about China for a moment. China has observer status in the Arctic Council, but that status is contingent upon its respect for the sovereign rights of Arctic states. The U.S. wants China to meet that condition and contribute responsibly in the region. But China's words and actions raise doubts about its intentions. Beijing claims to be a near-Arctic state, yet the shortest distance between China and the Arctic is 900 miles. Are you getting that? So China is an observer status, just like others, and they're trying to raise a claim that they're close enough to the Arctic to be part of the council and they should lay claim to it. And the thing is, if you want to play, like you said, price of admission is transparency and respect. Now, China doesn't respect all eight nations. China doesn't recognize all eight nations. China's China. And President Trump has made it clear. So this is an issue for them. But let's not forget Russia also plays into that too. But um, China has to learn to play fair or else they won't let them invest. And by investing, I mean they buy out ports. They've got Chinese money. Yeah, they'll invest in an oil company of another oil company of another oil to, to, to rig up out in the Arctic and they'll put up housing with Chinese dollars and they'll be making the money. But in essence, they may be expanding their military there. And ergo, here's where we get into Russia. Let me fast forward it. Military presence, including our deployment of submarines in the Arctic Ocean. It's planning to build infrastructure from Canada to the Northwest Territories to Siberia. And just last month, Russia announced plans to connect the Northern Sea route with China's Maritime Silk Road, which would develop a new shipping channel from Asia to Northern Europe. Meanwhile, China is already developing shipping lanes in the Arctic Ocean. This is part of a very familiar pattern. Beijing attempts to develop critical infrastructure using Chinese money, Chinese companies, and Chinese workers in some cases to establish a permanent Chinese security presence. Our Pentagon warned just last week that China could use its civilian research presence in the Arctic to strengthen its military presence, including our deployment of submarines, including deployment of submarines to the region as a deterrent against nuclear attack. We need to examine these activities closely.
And he's right. See, this is why we're having heat with China, because we're not putting up with this rubbish anymore. What you you all know that Russia and China created a railway, a, a direct railway between Russia and China. They have a great trade relationship. Russia's huge and massive. And Russia is the entryway for China into the Arctic because Russia has claim to it. And what Pompeo stated was that they've created their own new Arctic passages. And they have an agreement with Russia where they merge their, you know, sea access transport from Silk Road, giving Russia access to use the Chinese routes and, you know, deliver and whatnot and go down to Australia and around and around because you have to have permission, kind of like airspace. But now Russia is allowing them to use their Arctic passage. So now, remember how I said it would be a monopoly kind of thing, Moscow to the UK. Well, what if China offers cheaper labor and faster ships than anyone else? Then they monopolize trade as well. This is how they dominate. They come in cheaper, faster, delivering faster. This is why on Shark Tank they tell you, did you ever look at getting your products done at China? Now let's listen to his closing remarks quickly. Snowmobiles. They easily could have died like so many before them. Instead, in 1968, they became the first human beings ever to reach the North Pole by land. Just 15 months before, Neil Armstrong made his historic first step on the moon. Courage and partnership. Courage and partnership is what this region depends on, especially today. So, for here at the Arctic Council, we've done our job. There's more to do. We face a new era of challenge in the region. Now is the time for increased vigilance and increased partnership and even more courage. We must hold each other accountable and we must not allow this forum to fall victim to subversion from Arctic or non-Arctic states. Through courage and partnership, we can succeed. I trust that we will. And our nations and the entire world can look forward to a bright, peaceful, sustainable future for this indispensable region. Thank you all for joining me here today. So we need courage and, I guess, a reciprocative relationship. Now, remember that yesterday I was talking about the fact that he's going to be going to Greenland. And that's super important. Greenland is a place that nobody talks about. Greenland is a place that, you know, never gets on the news and nobody visits. And it's part of the kingdom of Denmark. Um, And it's really hard to get airline tickets there, guys, uh, at a good price. Anyway, maybe it's cheaper from Canada. I have to look at that. (laughs) But what I'm trying to point out to you is, is that Russia and China, Russia has always been a threat, not so much because they want to go attack people, but they're more on the defense side, right? And they know the Arctic because the majority of their nation is in the Arctic. And so they exploit that and they have military bases there. They have all their nuke subs there. They do a lot of research and, you know, you get the best caviar beluga, you know, from Russia because it comes from where the Arctic. So anyway, um, they, They know how to use it. The danger, and President Trump said this during his campaign, is not Russia. It's China. Russia is 
logical. Russia answers to a higher power, right? They're very, very religious Christians. It'll be very difficult for them as a nation's conscience to annihilate civilizations to dominate the world in the sense that the Chinese would do in a heartbeat because it's part of their cultural norm. Let's be, let's be, you know, objective on this. So when we're looking at threats, the number one threat is China. China has a hold on everyone. China has the majority of the globe's population. You know, they have a big portion of it within their nation. They work cheap. They produce fast and they always look for money. You know, one thing, every, every country has its own people. Yesterday, um, while I was working, I overheard, uh, an old couple talking. They're from Europe. I'm not going to state what country, but they were from Europe and they were like best friends. It was a guy and, and a, a little old lady and a little old man. And he had gone with her, um, for an appointment and they were kind of like sidebar talking while the rest of us were waiting on hold on speakerphone for the, you know, conversation, the medical conference to begin, um, you know, where we were advising them that, that that's something that I do as a paying job. So as we're all sitting there, I guess nobody else can speak that language, but I did, or maybe they did whatever. And I was listening to them and I was thinking, you know, it's not, you know, they were very, um, if someone was to hear the conversation in English, they would have thought, uh, whoa, bigots, whoa, stereotypes, but they were talking about politics in Europe. They were like, Hey, did your kids come back? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We have elections. This is ridiculous. They're like this. He's like, now, you know, the Chinese have taken over the port and you know, the Chinese are known for one thing. They're, they're undercutting business people. They're disgusting. And you can tell because there's two things that they do that everybody knows they're sleazy and, um, perverted when it comes to sex. This is what this 80 year old guy was saying to his gal pal. And, uh, when it comes to, to investments, there's always a political motivator. It's like, I'm pretty sure he said that they would probably turn Piraeus port into a military installation for Chinese soldiers. And he goes in the last time I went there to take a ferry boat, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, it kind of looked like there was way too many, um, ships and that were odd. So this is a reality for many people that they can understand nations from what they're known for. Kind of like, you know, uh, the people of Israel are known for being what? Very thrifty. Uh, there's a saying that Jews have crabs in their pockets, meaning that if they go in to reach out for money, uh, you know, their hand will be bitten so they don't spend. Uh, they're very thrifty and that comes from the nature that they have of thriftiness because of the Holocaust, because they had to make ends meet with very little. These are like cultural nuances or habits that have been formed within communities and societies. Now, one habit and one cultural nuance that the Chinese have is that they always backstab whoever they work with. They are not honorable to their word, to people that are not considered part of the Chinese kingdom. And now there's no for there's no actual kingdom, but Singapore, Japan, North Korea, South Korea, even the Philippines, right, are considered their brothers or cousins. So for them, it would take a lot to backstab them.
But to backstab anyone like Russia, Germany, the United States, Brazil, Venezuela, it's in a heartbeat. If it's beneficial to them on a monetary scale or to expand their government, they will do so in a heartbeat. They will not even think twice about it. The only time that they will second guess any plan to dominate, to, you know, crumble a a country's economy or to wage war is with their sister or cousin countries. I want to make that clear so people understand it. And this is a, a, a representative of, you know, uh, a nation like that, kind of like the Germans. You know that the Germans, if you're in Germany and you work, uh, you, can take, you can't take a day off of work to go to the doctor, but you can get the day off of work to go to the bank. They're really square people. It's a cultural thing. This is what I'm trying to say. This diversity we have in these individual nuances as nations that exist tell us exactly what to be careful of. And with the Russians, it's always like, well, I want to defend myself. So that comes first always. But they're reasonable. The Chinese are all about... Offense and defense go hand in hand. If you're in a defensive position, you better know that that's also their offense. And it's always like that. They're very aggressive. And this was made clear at the Arctic Council too. Now going forward, okay, because I only have like two minutes left. I can't believe it. And I ran through commercials. Going forward, I want you guys to know that with China, now with the talks that we're having this week and on Thursday, they're supposed to be coming. There's going to be new tariffs. There's a lot more pressure in this Arctic Council meeting exercise even more pressure on them because we're calling out what they're doing. We're literally calling them out for their behavior and their actions and how they're moving forward. Now, on the other hand, there's a lot of people that claim that the reason that this Arctic Council is trying to embrace other nations is because they want people who know the oil business and gas business to be able to invent invest in the region that would include Saudi Arabia and so here is where they're apprehensive on it because from what I heard Saudi Arabia has tried to penetrate the Greenland market through banking and you can't find news on it I found it on some weird Qatari you know website it's like a news site but more it looks like a blog I guess because it's not like super official but I'm still looking into that. So we should have some really interesting Chinese developments coming up and maybe some new news in regards to Russia, considering that, um, you know, they had this talk and plans changed. Also, I believe that uh, the European Union now and Turkey not complying with the waivers in place for Iran, we may see sanctions with Turkey and that may cause a lot of stress between the U.S. and EU relations. But we'll see how that goes. In the meantime, let's all be waiting at the edge of our seat for Comey's indictment to be announced and see his side of the story on Anderson Cooper on Thursday night. Uh, so this is going to be a week to remember, and I hope all of you have a little bit of a better idea about the Arctic Council and what we do there and how it's literally a marketplace that has not been taken advantage of yet. Prosperity, key above all. From all of us here at Red State, God bless. Have a great evening. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place, Monday through Friday, 12 to 2 Eastern on Red State Talk Radio. Have a great night.